listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode four, Ohio vs. Civil War. Today we're talking about Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, Steubenville, Ohio. A true member of the team arrivals, a lifelong Democrat, joining the first Republican president and being the real unsung hero to help us win the Civil War in 1865. And our guest today is Walter Starr, Simon & Schuster author, living in California, who wrote the 2017 book Stanton, Lincoln's War Secretary. Walter, an awesome author, and so glad that he was able to join us. And again, his book Stanton 2017, you got to go check it out on Amazon. We're going to talk to him when you get an author of his caliber. I I always want to talk about the process of of researching and writing a book uh, that's received such great reviews uh, as his book Stanton. We'll talk about some of his other books and, and upcoming projects as well. And we'll sprinkle that in through the show. Uh, when you get an author like that, you want to be able to talk to them about the, you know, the process. Also, if you haven't heard, uh, to a couple weeks ago, we joined a statewide show. It's played on the radio across the state called Town Hall, Ohio, uh, a great public affairs podcast. And you can go back and listen to that. We were the guest for the entire episode. Uh, it's in our SoundCloud feed. So if you listen to us on SoundCloud, just scroll down. You'll see our Ohio, our Town Hall Ohio episode or find them on Stitcher, Google Play, uh, iTunes, anywhere you get your pods. Really fun interview we did with them. Um, and go back and listen to that one. Uh, and it was a really good time. Our beer for the episode, we are in Cincinnati today, Ohio's great original beer city. We're drinking the Mad Tree Brewing. It's the PSA. Stands for Proper Session Ale and also stands for Public Service Announcement. Their idea is that this is such an approachable um, craft beer that you know anyone can drink 4.5%, another one of those kind of citrusy uh, session American pale ales, a really good beer. Uh, they make really good beer. You can go check them out just north of downtown in Cincinnati, madtreebrewing.com. And again, today we're having the PSA for two reasons. One, it's in Cincinnati, Ohio, that Lincoln and Stanton first meet. They were co-counsel on a case um, and some controversy about that, you know, how the, their first meeting and how that really went. And also, Stanton really is one of the first people to use press releases, the public service announcements, the PSA. Um, and we'll look at some of his press releases that he did. You'll find uh, Bad Tree Brewing at, at all kinds of stores and bars across the state of Ohio. So pick up a, you know, a six-pack. This is their, one of their core four beers, the PSA. We had the shade, their sour, uh, on a previous episode. And again, madtreebrewing.com. Also, guys, reminding you, the Ohio History Connection is who we're trying to promote for Giving Tuesday, like Cyber Monday and, and Black Friday. It's a, it's a day where you can actually give back. So we ask you to go to ohiohistory.org, hit the donate button. Any of that money you give goes to serve their mission of telling Ohio's stories like we do here on Ohio v. the World. 
Um, so check them out again, ohiohistory.org on Giving Tuesday. That's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, November 27th. And, and feel free to donate to them because, again, they do such great work to promote history across the state of Ohio. But think about Edwin Stanton. And we almost call this episode uh, Ohio versus Hard Work because he just worked harder than everyone else. Sure, he was smart. Sure, he was talented, organized, like all great leaders you know, would be. But he outworked you. And we'll talk to Walter Starr, our guest, about Stanton's legendary work ethic. He guides us through and organizes the U.S. Army, the Union Army, at a time when this country nearly fell apart. He's a secretary from 1862 to 1865. And he is, as I said, the unsung hero of the Civil War. We could not have done it without him. He revolutionizes the War Department, the military, and turns it into a fighting force. It was completely, 1861 was a mess. 1862 was as well. But Stanton turns things around. And without him and and the great hire that he was by President Lincoln, we could not have won this war. He's from Steubenville, Ohio, up on the river, home of Dean Martin, the home of Dino Tripodis. Again, go back and listen. We were just on Whiskey Business a couple weeks ago, one of our favorite podcasts. Go find that episode about about uh, bootlegging. We talked with him about George Remus for an hour, uh, and it was a really fun time, always on on Whiskey Business. Without further ado, though, Thanksgiving coming up, we're going to give thanks for Edwin M. Stanton, the man who helped save the Union. It's episode four, Ohio vs. Civil War. Our guest today, Walter Starr, you can go to WalterStarr.com, S-T-A-H-R. Check out his other books, a great book about founding father John Jay, another book about one of the team arrivals, William Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man. And he's working on a new book about Salmon P. Chase, a great Ohioan from Cincinnati that we've talked about on this show. You can go back and listen to our episode, episode eight last season, Ohio vs. Celebrity, about Chase and his daughter, Kate Chase. That book coming out, hopefully, you know, in the next year or two, uh, and we'll have to have Walter back on. But Walter Starr is a hell of an author. We had so much fun talking to him. We had to cut so much out of our, of our interview that was well over an hour. And you can see him on, you know, I saw a number of great clips he has on C-SPAN and presentations. I just watched one, and we'll play you a little bit from a presentation he did at Ford's Theater earlier this year. But Walter Starr wasn't an author. He was a lawyer rather high-powered lawyer in D.C., California, international uh, banking kind of stuff. And, and we wanted to talk to him, like we said, we'll sprinkle this in, about the book writing process. Walter told us a funny story about how he got into writing these history books. It was after he finished and, and put down a book that he didn't think was very good. I was reading a book, so like a lot of your listeners, a big, big reader of American history, and I kind of finished the book and I put it down, And I said, oh, that wasn't very good. I could do better than that. Even I could do better than that. And then it was as if there was a little hidden, you know, uh, speaker in the corner of the room, uh, a voice saying, so, Star, if you think that, do it. Write a book. And I said, oh, no, it's not impossible. It's utterly impossible. I'm, you know, I, I was at the time 
um, the internal lawyer for a major American financial firm. I was traveling all through Asia, traveling back here to the States for business. I had two little children, um, you know, just not, not possible. But I did start to think about it. And as I thought about it and kind of read about various founding fathers, I stumbled upon this guy, John Jay, who had not been the subject of a biography since the 1930s. And when I read that book, oh, it wasn't very good. Um, so I decided to try to do better, to try to give John Jay the biography he deserves. Um, uh, and that became my first book. I, I was actually working as a lawyer in Washington, D.C. while I was going to the Library of Congress kind of nights and weekends to, uh, to do the research on that book. Walter Starr decided to write a book about Edwin Stanton, a native of Steubenville, Ohio. It's our first trip to Steubenville in, in eastern Ohio along the Ohio River, uh, today at the county seat of Jefferson County, a city of about 20,000 Ohioans, just about 25 miles north of Wheeling, West Virginia, and only about 40 minutes uh, west of Pittsburgh. It really is that tri-state uh, area around Wheeling and Steubenville, Pittsburgh, that little triangle there. Stanton's born in 1814. He's the son of, of a doctor, David Stanton. And Stanton was a short guy, said to be about five foot five, and had a little bit of that Napoleon complex in him, a, the first of four children. And Edwin Stanton, like so many other children in the early 19th century, loses his father at a early age, I think about 13 years old. It's amazing that someone so educated and so smart, such a brilliant legal mind, was pulled out of school at 13. We asked Walter Starr about his childhood. So he received kind of a basic local grammar school education in Steubenville. Uh, Stanton's father died when Stanton was only 13 years old um, and left a wife and children and no money. So Stanton had to go to work um, to support the family. He went to work in a bookstore. Um, the family was pretty poor in the years after the father's death, and that poverty helped to make Stanton the hardworking, um, overworking man that he became. It was a little bookstore in Steubenville. That was kind of his first bookstore. Uh, and then later in life, he works in a bookstore in Columbus, Ohio. Right, that's right. Uh, but... But yeah, some, some Steubenville residents remembered kind of coming into the bookstore and thinking that there were no employees on duty. And then you sort of looked over the counter and, oh, there's, there's little Edwin standing next to Lincoln. It must have been quite a contrast. Stanton manages to, to get to Kenyon College, Gambier, Ohio, uh, just outside of Mount Vernon, a great school, one of the leading liberal arts colleges in, in the country a place we visit every year at the end of, of the Pelotonia bike race, uh, a beautiful school. It almost looks like it's in, in the Northeast. We talked to, to Walter Starr about his time at Kenyon at the beginning of the university, founded by Salmon P. Chase's uncle, Philander Chase, when Stanton attended there in the 1830s. 
So, again, because of money, Stanton wasn't in college for very long. He was only there for three terms. Um, and at the end of the third term, he and the, the kind of the executor of his father's will had a negotiation, and the answer was no, there's no more money. So you've got to go back to work. Um, that's when he went to work in the bookstore in Columbus. Upon leaving Kenyon, Edwin Stanton ends up in Columbus, Ohio, my hometown. Columbus is is a tiny, like Walter started the research on it, almost like a village. And Walter talks about his time where he, he met his wife at the Trinity Episcopal Church, which is still there today, um, about 125th East Broad Street, a big church downtown. But talks, we talked to him about, about what Edwin Stanton does here in Columbus, and really more importantly about Columbus in the 1830s. Columbus, now the 14th largest city in the country, was not anywhere close to that when Stanton moves here. It's important you know, for your listeners to bear in mind that Columbus in the early 1830s is really nothing like Columbus today. Um, you know, one friend asked me that question when he read a draft of it, and so I added a bit, you know, um, it was only about 2,000 people when he first arrived. So I mean, it's really almost a village, not a town or a city. Um, but it's an important place in Stanton's life history, even though he's not there very long, because that's where he met his first wife uh, through the Episcopal Church that he attended and where her uncle was the the Episcopal priest. Yeah, and I think that church is, is still down there. Uh, that church in is still downtown. down there. I'm... I'm uh, Pulling out, I'm probably one of the few people in California that has uh, be a, a wonderful history of the church, uh, be it remembered, the story of Trinity Episcopal Church mm-hmm. on Capitol Square. Stan begins his law career in Steubenville in eastern Ohio and also becomes uh, begins working with the Ohio Supreme Court. He's almost like the court reporter um, and, and basically publishing the court's opinions while working in Columbus, Ohio. And Stanton becomes a, a very important attorney. And as we skip ahead in his life, he moves to the Pittsburgh area, although Walter says he still maintained Steubenville as his home. And as a high-powered attorney, he begins a case known as the Wheeling Bridge case. We talked to Walter about this important case that went through the U.S. Supreme Court and went through the United States Senate and really was Edwin Stanton's first big case. The Wheeling Bridge was a suspension bridge between Wheeling, Virginia, as it was then, and the Ohio side. Um, And at the time of its construction, it was the largest suspension bridge in the world. It was, you know, sort of an engineering marvel. But from the perspective of Pittsburgh, which was where Stanton was living at the time, the bridge was a threat. Pittsburgh depended on the steamboats going up and down the Ohio River. And the tallest steamboats at the highest water could not get under the bridge. So Stanton's client was the state of Pennsylvania. Um, they were the plaintiff, and the defendant was the Wheeling Bridge Company. Um, and Stanton's, you know, they, they were seeking to have the bridge either raised or removed. Uh, and the case was argued several times in the Supreme Court, particularly if you count, it was argued not only to the whole Supreme Court, but it was argued a number of times to a single uh, Supreme Court justice sitting as a circuit judge. And in a sense, 
Stanton lost. He lost in Congress when Congress passed a statute declaring the road over the bridge to be a national postal road. And then he lost in the Supreme Court when the court uh, finally decided that, that because of that statute, the, the bridge was protected, even though it had earlier ruled in Stanton's favor that the bridge was a nuisance and had to be raised. And then just to come down to the present, as those who live in that corner of Ohio will know, the bridge is still there. So if Stanton's goal was to get the bridge destroyed, he failed. drinking a beer today from Cincinnati, the, the PSA from Mad Tree, because that's where Lincoln and Edwin Stanton first met. They were both working on the same case in 1855. It was a patent case. They were representing Cyrus McCormick, who had invented the mechanical reaper, a reaper that basically uh, revolutionized farming. You know, you used to have to, to do the, all that work by hand. Um, and they were defending McCormick against a patent violation by a competitor. The case was set in Chicago, and they had hired Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and Lincoln worked diligently on the case, but before it ever went to a hearing, the case got transferred to Cincinnati, and they hired a more nationally known attorney, Edwin Stanton. But no one told Lincoln he was off the case, and he shows up in Cincinnati, um, not able to practice in Ohio. And Lincoln sits idly by as Stanton argues the case, and he's not needed at all. But there's much talked about this first meeting between Lincoln and Stanton that they got off on the wrong foot, that Stanton was unimpressed with Lincoln and, and was rude to him and all this stuff. We ask Walter Starr, is there any truth to that, that story about the first meeting of Stanton and Lincoln in Cincinnati, or Cincinnati, as Walter Starr calls it? We know that they were both in Cincinnati. I mean, we have newspaper accounts um, of, the, of the trial. Um, and it's often said in various books, Lincoln biographies, Stanton biographies, that Lincoln did not impress Stanton, that Stanton insulted Lincoln. But when you kind of drill through those biographies and, and books and try to find the original sources, the sources are all from after the death of Lincoln and the death of Stanton. Uh, they tend to be sort of well, I remember hearing my uncle, who was in Cincinnati at the time, saying that he heard from someone that Lincoln had been insulted by Stanton. Um, you know, what we don't have are, say, a letter from Lincoln from Cincinnati saying, I have never been insult so insulted in my life. Nor do we have a letter from Stanton mentioning Lincoln. We do actually have. Um, and I went to the National Archives and read them in the original. Um, two long letters that Stanton wrote to his then fiance about Cincinnati and the trial and the defense team and all this, and they don't mention Lincoln. So I'm inclined to be a little skeptical of all these stories about Stanton insulted Lincoln just because they come from so much later. Um, uh, 
it's possible. Stanton was often rude, uh, <laughs> but I, I just don't, I don't view it as, as gospel. I feel like this is probably the third time, at least second time this season that we've talked about the quote unquote trial of the century. This trial of the century we're talking about takes place in Washington, DC in 1859. Stanton had begun doing some work for the government. He's a, again, a high powered attorney and he gets hired by a man named Daniel Sickles a congressman accused of murder, and hardly even accused. He, he shot this man in broad daylight on Pennsylvania Avenue. This case became a sensation across the country in every newspaper. We talked to Walter about the murder of Francis Barton Key and the role of our subject today, Edwin Stanton, in this trial of the century in D.C. in 1859. There's not many cases where you have a, a really famous defendant uh, Daniel Sickles, a member of Congress, a protege of the president, you know, widely seen as kind of an up-and-coming political leader um, on the one hand, and then a very famous victim. Philip Barton Key was at the time the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, so, you know, the senior prosecutor for, for all cases in the District of Columbia, and he was the son of an even more famous key, the author of the Star Spangled Banner. So you've got famous folks on both sides. And then, you know, maybe the critical person uh, is the wife of Sickles, the lovely young Teresa Bagioli Sickles, um, who had been sleeping with Key. Mm -hmm. And the defense team argued that self-defense, and this is widely thought to be kind of the first self-defense and also temporary insanity. And it's more often remembered for the temporary insanity piece because this is widely viewed as kind of the first uh, big temporary insanity case. Uh, newspapers in those days um, would give much more space to something like this than they would today. I mean, the, the, the sort of, you know, minute by minute account of what was going on uh, was front page news all over the country. It was a big defense team, half a dozen lawyers. So the other folks were the lead on that. Stanton argued, gave a long argument. Um, <laughs> closing arguments were, were, were very generous and lengthy <laughs> in those days. Um, so it goes on for pages and pages about sort of self-defense, about how Sickles was merely defending himself and his wife and his home. Uh, and it worked. After about an hour, the jury acquitted Sickles, and he was sort of carried out of the courtroom by the, the joyous crowd um, with Stanton and uh, the other defense lawyers kind of dancing behind. Democrat James Buchanan was elected president in 1856 from Pennsylvania. And he's widely regarded today as one of the worst presidents of all time. It's under his watch that this country slips into civil war. But it's also under his watch that Edwin Stanton joins his first cabinet. Following Lincoln's election in November 1860, as the country literally rushes towards secession, cabinet members begin leaving because of some of these disputes. And Stanton is named to attorney general during this kind of lame duck period. But this isn't a normal lame duck period. It's during this time that southern states begin seceding from the Union. Almost the same day that Stanton is appointed, on December 20th, 1860, South Carolina becomes the first state to leave the Union. And following the new year, many other states would follow. 
And Stanton finds himself in the middle of a constitutional crisis. And he finds himself in the middle of, of what to do about Fort Sumter, this important federal garrison in, in Charleston Harbor, a great place to visit, take a boat out there if you're ever in Charleston. Uh, myself and, and Miss Ohio V. The World made that trip, and hopefully we'll be able to make it again sometime soon. But Stanton is firmly on the side of what are called the northern wing of the, of the cabinet. This idea that we cannot just give up Fort Sumter for the message it'll send to states all over the South. You know, at this time, people are grabbing guns from these federal arsenals, and they're beginning to arm themselves. The North is still slow to react. Buchanan's presidency, of course, was marred by this. But Stanton was one of the people who told to his face Buchanan that this would be a treasonous act. He did everything he could to snap the Buchanan administration into action. We asked Walter about the winter, the secession winter of 1860-1861. Stanton was a good friend of Jeremiah Black, um, a lawyer from Pennsylvania, who was the first attorney general for Buchanan, and, and indeed attorney general through most of the Buchanan administration. And Stanton, there was no justice department in those days. And Stanton did a lot of legal work for Black and for the U.S. government, including coming here to California to handle a whole set of cases here in California. Right. Um, in late 1860, as the country was kind of going to hell in a handbasket, the cabinet started to fall apart. And um, the Secretary of State resigned. And Black was promoted from Attorney General to Secretary of State. And then he kind of turned to the president and said, well, now you need an attorney general, and I think you should hire my friend Edwin Stanton. And I don't think there was a lot of, you know, a long deliberation over dozens of candidates. I think it just kind of happened that way. Buchanan when, didn't know Stanton very well when he brought him into his cabinet, and I'm sure there were times when Buchanan regretted it because um, the cabinet was very divided into what you might call the northern and southern wings, even though some of the, the the sort of southern sympathizers, you know, were actually from northern states. Stanton was very firmly in the northern wing, in the stand up to the south wing, and that meant stand up to Buchanan himself, who was very much inclined to try to do nothing to anger or alienate or um, drive away any more of the southern states um, during that winter. Yeah, he's in a tough spot over there. He's uh, in a tough spot. I'm not sure, you know, he's often kind of criticized, but I'm not honestly sure if Abraham Lincoln had become president. You know, in those days, the gap between election and inauguration was much longer. Inauguration didn't occur until early March. Even if we imagine that Abraham Lincoln had become president on, you know, January 20th, 1861, I'm not sure that he would have done anything that different than what Buchanan did during that two-month period. Thanks for listening to Ohio v. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection for only the Ohio Historical Society preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member 
go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. On today's Ohio History Connection Minute, we sat down with Cliff Eckel, the Senior History Curator at the Ohio History Connection. And ever since I joined the History Connection, people have been telling me, you got to talk to Cliff, you got to talk to Cliff. The guy knows a lot, and he knows a lot about the Civil War. First, we talk with Cliff about, about the collection. He helps manage our massive collection, these storage units, all these actual items and documents from Ohio's history. The idea for us at the Ohio History Connection is to get more of these things into your hands. You know, coming up, we're, we're putting a, the Ohio Constitution, the original Constitution, at display at the State House later this month in November. Um, on November 28th, actually, there'll be a, a ceremony to, to, to start that exhibit. But we talked to Cliff about what it's like to manage this giant collection. We're really hoping to create a state-of-the-art collections facility that would be on the main campus of the History Center. A lot of people, when they think of museum collections, if it's not on display, they think it's not valued or appreciated. I think they conjure up the final uh, scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark that it goes into this vast warehouse where it'll never see the light of day again. And Everything that we have, in the, or even the things that are in storage, they're cataloged and they're you know, site-located. So if it isn't on display, we can make arrangements for people to see it. And I don't think most people realize that. Um, we're kind of fortunate, though, as an institution, uh, with all the sites we have around the state, um, as far as history collections concerned, and this is separate from natural history or archaeology, a little over 40% of our collections are on display. Uh, most museums can only display maybe 2 to 5%. Yeah. So uh, with all the venues that we have, we're rather fortunate that way. Cliff's also responsible for a current exhibit at the Ohio History Connection called the Ohio History Center in Columbus called Follow the Flag. There's 10 or more uh, just restored Civil War flags that Cliff and others helped restore. They're beautiful. If you look at our cover photo on, on our Facebook page for Ohio V. The World, I'm in that exhibit um, is where they took that picture, the Fall the Flag exhibit. We talked to Cliff about those Ohio battle flags that, that are shown um, from the Ohio National Guard that he helped restore, and now you can go see at the Ohio History Center in Columbus. The exhibit that uh, we have downstairs focuses on some of the conserved battle flags that we've been able to do in the last 20 years. Uh, a lot of the flags uh, were, are silk, and uh, very fragile. And in the Civil War, they were carried in battle as a primary communication tool. Um, sometimes in the din of battle with uh, all the, the musketry and you know, cannon fire, you couldn't hear the drum rolls or the bugle calls that told you where to go. So you went where your colors went uh, in the battle formation. And uh, so that made those a target from the enemy's point of view. So uh, a lot of them sought hard use, and even by the end of the war, they were in really delicate and fragile condition. And um, so I'm kind of just one you know, you know, step, you know, one generation of uh, many generations that have been trying to preserve these flags. Fort Sumter is fired upon April 12, 1861. 
just weeks after Lincoln takes office and the Civil War has begun. But before we let Cliff Eckel from the Ohio History Connection go, we had to talk to him about the War Department that Edwin Stanton inherits in 1862, run by Simon Cameron, uh, just a terrible year of losses in 1861, as the War Department and the military are completely unprepared for the Civil War. We talked to Cliff, and we also will, will talk with Walter Starr, our guest, about Stanton taking over at the War Department and changing the course of the Civil War. The War Department, prior to Stanton taking charge, was so disorganized. And, but it's kind of understandable. That, um, the War Department was, had traditionally been rather, uh, rather small, and you had this massive increase in the size of the Army and all the logistical uh, necessities that it requires, and it never been done before. And uh, uh, in the first part of the Lincoln's administration, it was almost, they called it the insane asylum. It was so disorganized. And um, people were taking advantage of uh, the government and delivering shoddy goods, and it, it was um, a big problem. And Stanton was able to come in and get it organized, and, uh, and it had never been done before. And uh, yeah, the largest mobilization we'd had prior to that was for the Mexican War, and it was nothing in comparison to what was happening during the Civil War. One thing that always seems to come up when you talk about Edwin Stanton was his work ethic. Whether, like Walter Starr says, is born out of his, his hard scrabble childhood after his father died, or whether it was just an innate ability to work harder than everyone else. I think that's one of the reasons he was so hard to, to deal with. It's because he expected everyone else to have the same level of intensity and work ethic and drive that he had. Uh, and Stanton was, was known to be very prickly and very difficult. But maybe, again, that's what made him great. We talked to Walter about... Edwin Stanton, Secretary Stanton's legendary work ethic in the War Department. Well, first of all, he just works harder. You know, I mean, he, you know, my my prior subject, Seward, would um, the Secretary of State during the Civil War, he would work. Uh, but then about 4.35 o'clock, he would call it a day and he would go home and, and you know, have a drink and, mm-hmm. and enjoy, a, you know, a dinner party. Um, and all, all the while that Seward is drinking and dining, Stanton is still at the War Department working away. And he often spends the night um, on a not very nice sofa. He works hard and he's very organized. Although Stanton didn't necessarily agree or like Lincoln at first, he joins the team of rivals and he attempts to right the ship in 1862 as the Union Army sends a massive force under General George McClellan, Little Napoleon. There's one thing Stanton and I share. It was a frustration with General McClellan, his unwillingness to fight, especially as he's in on the Peninsula Campaign in Virginia, and, and even earlier, and even after. But Stanton had a very complicated relationship with General McClellan. We talk to Walter Starr, about that relationship. When McClellan first arrived in Washington, the young Napoleon, in the summer of 61, this is before Stanton is Secretary of War. Stanton is just a kind of 
lawyer in Washington, um, they become friendly. Um, uh, they're both Democrats. They both kind of see the war in the same way. They think that Lincoln is not doing a good job. Um, but almost as soon as Stanton is promoted above McClellan's head and becomes Secretary of War, um, the relationship um, changes. Um, and Stanton comes to share Lincoln's impatience with McClellan, feeling that McClellan is good at organizing and training and moving troops, but not good at fighting, the, the sort of final stage of being a general. Um, and on his side, McClellan came to hate Stanton, uh, believing that Stanton was denying him the troops he needed, even though Lincoln and Stanton gave McClellan an army so large he couldn't really deploy it on the narrow peninsula in Virginia. The Civil War is credited with modernizing warfare. Sure, it was a slaughter, and it was for the entire four years, but a number of innovations grew out of that war. Things like the Gatling gun, the beginning of automatic machine gun warfare. More important were some of the naval developments in the war. The day of the wooden ship powered by sail and wind uh, is how the war started. But quickly, in 1862, one of my favorite stories is the story of the Merrimack, or the CSS Virginia, as it was later called. The ironclads. These iron and steel steamships that replaced and revolutionized naval warfare, made these, all these wooden ships completely obsolete, not just in our Navy, but in every Navy. And you look at the Merrimack, and Stanton played a role in this, you know, what would have been a terrifying episode. You know, it was called the Merrimack. It was salvaged by the Confederates, and they put, you know, ironclad sides on it, more guns, uh, again, covered it in iron plating, and renamed it the, the CSS Virginia. 1862 in March, the Virginia goes to battle, and, and it's you know there's something called the blockade. A very important part of of the northern strategy was to blockade the entire perimeter of the Confederacy, so nothing could come in from England and France, and nothing could go out. The Anaconda, as it was called, was strangling the Confederacy. They were living off the land really all the weapons that they could produce, which was very few. The Virginia, the Mary Max job is to break through and to break the, the blockade, possibly show Britain that, that they could bring in you know, items and they could trade with the Confederacy and maybe even enter the war on their side. And so this new ship, you know, scary as it looked, if you can go back and look at it, it comes out in 1862 in Hampton Roads, Virginia, in the Norfolk area. Um, where one of our main naval bases is today on the East Coast. And it, go, it goes out, and there's four or five ships out there. There's the Cumberland, the USS Congress, the USS Minnesota, these wooden ships with, with cannons and sailors. And the Merrimack just goes right up to them and starts firing upon them and takes their, their, all their cannons. Everything just bounces right off this ship. It's an ironclad. They'd never seen anything like it. And they ram the Cumberland. The USS Congress is, is, is you know, surfaced and or is destroyed. The Minnesota is grounded. It's the worst naval loss for the American Navy since Pearl Harbor. And the Merrimack goes on this rampage. And there's panic throughout the North. You know, Stanton feared that the Merrimack would, would come up the river, 
the 100, 150 miles to D.C. and fire on, on, on Washington, D.C. No one could stop it. It destroyed other port cities. There's an emergency meeting in the cabinet. And on March 9th, 1862, the U.S. had their own ironclad. Hastily built in Brooklyn, sailed down when, when they learned about the Merrimack. And after the Battle of Hampton Roads, it engages. And it's a battle of two ironclads, the Battle of the Ironclads, the Merrimack and the USS Monitor. And they battle it out for four hours. You know, 10,000 soldiers kind of stand from both sides watching this historic battle. And for four hours, they slug it out. Uh, and the captain of the monitor is actually severely injured. A shell blows up as he's looking out one of the one of the lookout windows, blows up in his face, uh, and they finally decide to retreat. You know, they're inches apart. You know, the the monitor had actually a rotating turret, which is another big, you know, innovation. Both sides declare victory. But what's at stake was almost everything in that battle. And they both, you know, declare themselves winners. Um but really neither technically won. You know, these exploding shells that make these wooden ships just completely obsolete, it changes naval history. But this terror, the SS, CSS Virginia, it actually ends up being scuttled when the Union troops take over Norfolk during their peninsula campaign in April and May of 1862. Stanton's on the scene when the, when the Merrimack is, is blown up and scuttled uh, when he takes a trip with President Lincoln to Norfolk. We talked to Walter Starr about that trip to Norfolk, General McClellan, and the scuttling of the Merrimack. You know, you ask who defeated the Merrimack, you could say Lincoln, Stanton, and Chase. Lincoln, Chase, and Stanton go to the Hampton Roads area, and in large part, to see McClellan. And they send him a telegram, and McClellan, I mean, any other general, the president has come down in part to see you, any other general would view that as a must you know, attend appointment. But McClellan wrote back saying he was far too busy with his army. He couldn't even spare a few hours to see the president. And so Lincoln and Stanton and Chase kind of did their own military work for a few days there. Um, they managed to capture Norfolk. Better captain scuttled the ship. And Lincoln was close enough that they heard the explosion when the Merrimack was scuttled. Edward Stanton was known to be very difficult to work with. Very strict, revenge-driven, and he took a special dislike to the American press. And for good reason. We talked about some of this when we talked about General Sherman in Season 2, Ohio versus South. I'll go back and listen to that episode from last year when we went to Lancaster, Ohio. But he's known for jailing members of the press that he thought were giving away sensitive information. And the entire situation when it comes to due process is really suspended during the war by President Lincoln. And Stanton takes full advantage of that. You know, the suspension of habeas corpus during the war. But Stanton, we talk with Walter Starr, gives us an Ohio example, the story of Clement Van Landingham. He would run for governor of Ohio. He is a copperhead, the leader of the copperheads, basically a Democrat who wanted to sue for peace immediately and end the war, a very unpopular war. Uh, in 1863, he's running for governor, but he finds himself in jail. This is an Ohio broadcast. Let's take an Ohio example, uh, Clement Vallandigham. Uh, Vallandigham was a member of Congress, and shortly after his term ended, 
um, he was arrested um, after giving an anti-Lincoln speech. Stanton didn't order that arrest. Almost as soon as he learned of it in Washington, he sent a note to the general, uh, Burnside, praising him for arresting um, this uh, political leader. Um, Vallandigham was tried by military commission and sentenced to spend the rest of the war in military prison. Lincoln commuted the sentence, which means he didn't pardon Vallandigham. He didn't sort of erase the criminal record, but he changed the, the punishment, um, released him from prison and sent him into exile, uh, first in the Confederacy, from where he went to Canada, from where he campaigned for governor. Uh, for in Ohio that year. Now, as you can imagine, I mean, this arrest was the front page news and all the papers, but, but in a way, he's just kind of the tip of an iceberg. He's one of thousands arrested in the North during the war, uh, many of whom spent months in prison. Um, and don't get me wrong, some of these people should have been arrested. They were spying for the Confederacy, they were tearing up railroad tracks, they were, you know, actively part of a, a, a sort of pro-Confederate um, effort. But some of these people were like the Landaham, arrested for their words rather than their actions. And Stanton bore much of the blame in the press, but he didn't care. Um, he saw such arrests as a necessary part of the war. Stanton as the Secretary of the War also controlled, you know, leave and all these different uh, the scheduling and logistics of the army. And as we come out of, of the midterm where President Trump has lost 30-some seats in the House and control the House of Representatives, midterms matter. And no, no midterms really seem to matter more than the midterms of 1862, the middle of Lincoln's presidency, during the war. And Lincoln takes a beating. Democrats make gains all over. The Congress is... is more, much more likely to actually try and pursue an angle of peace. The war isn't going well. It's hard to blame them. They want to end the bloodshed. But as these other 1863 and 1864 elections come, Edwin Stanton puts himself right in the middle of it, knowing how important it is the Republican and Lincoln agenda continues to carry out. He controls who goes back to vote, what soldiers will be given leave, and he meddles in the election because midterms matter. We talked to Walter about Stanton's role in keeping Lincoln elected. I mean, 62 is the first year in which he is Secretary of War, and he really doesn't focus much on politics that fall. Um, and, and gaboom, when the election returns come in, it's a real rebuke for Lincoln and Stanton and others. Um, a bunch of prominent anti-war Democrats are elected in the fall of 62. And I think Stanton learns a lesson because even in the spring of 63 in some state elections in New England, he's focused. Um, and he continues to focus through, really through his whole time um, as Secretary of War. Um, one aspect of that is getting soldiers to vote. You know, some states allowed people to vote in the field 
And so then the exercise was getting the voting materials, the ballots, the the vote counters to the soldiers and other states did not. And then the exercise was getting soldiers home. Um, and Democrats charged with considerable justification that Stanton was selective about the regiments that were sent home to vote. I mean, obviously, he didn't have the ability to ask each individual soldier, how are you going to vote? But he could look at the he, he did have ways of knowing kind of the political views of the regimental leaders. And if a regiment was led by a prominent Democrat, well, it probably was going to stay in the trenches right where it was. And if a regiment was led by a, you know, a, a vocal Republican, lo and behold, here are free passes home to Ohio or New Hampshire or wherever it was uh, so that that regiment could vote. Stanton was also an abolitionist. Following the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, he goes about trying to sort out this giant problem of freed slaves. It's almost like a refugee crisis. They're following the army. We talked about that in our Sherman episode. But most of these people are out of, of house and home. They don't know if they're free or are still enslaved. And the Freedmen's Bureau has begun. And Edward Stanton would oversee it as part of the War Department. We ask our, our guest, Walter Starr, about the Freedmen's Bureau and the work that Stanton does to help free African Americans. Well, the Freedmen's Bureau was an office within the War Department dedicated to helping the recently freed former slaves. And its work ranged from you know, basic, um, what we would call almost disaster relief kinds of things, you know, feeding folks who find themselves um, without food, clothing, shelter, um, to much more long-term projects in terms of education, preparing people to vote. And he, he, long before the legislation passed to create the Bureau that passed in uh, early 1865, not long before Lincoln's death, um, Stanton was kind of involved in the effort, if you will, to persuade Congress to create such a bureau, um, sending out, you know, fact-finding missions and gathering information and publishing reports and talking with congressmen. Um, he, he felt very strongly that this was both sort of made sound military sense because he wanted the young able black men in the army. And if you were going to do that, you needed to think about, well, what's going to happen to the women and children and old folks. Um, but he also, for him, there was a moral aspect to it as well, that you, you couldn't free these people and then just leave them on their own to cope. Thanks in large part to Steubenville, Ohio's Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. The, the Civil War finally does shift into the favor of the North. He's able to organize and wield the mighty power of the northern states. And in April 1865, the war begins to wind down, and it happens quickly. There's a great book called April 1865 by Jay Winnick you should go read, uh, The Month That Saved the Union. And it really was a crazy month. April 2nd, Jefferson Davis, on that Sunday, Jefferson Davis and the Confederates flee Richmond. Richmond falls to the Northern Army. The four-year struggle to finally capture that capital city of the Confederacy, you know, only 100 miles south of our own capital in D.C. 
But on April 2nd, people gather outside the, the secretary's office, secretary of the War Department office. We, we play for you a, from a presentation Walter Starr gave at the Ford Theater, a speech given by Stanton as people called and celebrated the fall of Richmond. Friends and fellow citizens, in this great hour of triumph, my heart, as well as yours, is penetrated with gratitude to Almighty God for his deliverance of this nation. Our thanks are due to the President, to the Army and Navy, to the great commanders by sea and land, to the gallant officers and men who have periled their lives upon the battlefield and drenched the soil with their blood. Henceforth, our commiseration and our aid should be given to the wounded, the maimed, and the suffering, who bear the marks of their great sacrifices in this mighty struggle. Let us humbly offer up our thanks to divine providence for his care over us and beseech him that he will guide and govern us in our duties hereafter as he he has carried us forward to victory in the past, that he will teach us how to be humble in the midst of triumph, how to be just in the hour of victory, and that he will enable us to secure the foundations of this republic, soaked as they have been in blood, so that it shall live forever and ever. As Walter points out, it's like the, much like Lincoln's second inaugural only a month earlier, that speech by by Stanton, about what the post-war world will look like. Just a week after, Sunday morning, April 9th, 1865, Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. And now the war really is over. As Sherman's closing in on Johnston down in North Carolina, the South has basically quit. Edwin Stanton's allowed to to celebrate. But just five days later, Friday, April 14th, 1865, in Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C., President Lincoln is assassinated. He's shot in the back of the head at point-blank range by John Wilkes Booth, the actor. He gets caught up in the American flag, which I always thought was kind of ironic, but crashes to the stage and yells, Six Semper Tyrannus, which is the motto of the state of Virginia, thus always to tyrants. He escapes out the back and by horse. And he flees Washington, D.C., barely making it across the bridge. And he makes it into, into Virginia, ultimately. It is the worst crime that I know of in American history other than 9-11. The death and assassination, the murder of Abraham Lincoln. Stanton is in D.C. that night. He had just spent the evening over at William Seward, the Secretary of State's house. Seward was laid up from a carriage accident he had, severely injured. But another one of the uh, another one of these conspirators with Booth, uh, Lewis Powell, had entered Seward's home um, under the guise he said that he was there to deliver medicine, forced his way upstairs, tries to kill Seward, slashes him, nearly kills him and his son as part of this conspiracy, almost at the same time. You know, there had been someone the night before the attack, a guy named Michael Laughlin, outside of Stanton's house, asking questions you know, about, about his routine and when he can be found. But it's a clear conspiracy. 
It happened just an hour after Stanton left Seward's house. And he's woken up. He goes to see Seward, who, who can barely talk, but tells him what happened. Then he it races to Ford's Theater. And across the street at the boarding house, laying diagonally across the bed, unconscious, he sees Lincoln, his president, mortally wounded. There's no doubt, talks to the doctors, they immediately tell him that, that he will not survive. Stanton goes straight to work. He, he commandeers a desk in the room next door. He begins talking to witnesses. He messages Grant uh, to protect himself. Um, he messages uh, people to close the bridges. He starts questioning all these witnesses um, you know, about what happened. He's a lawyer. He knows that getting witness statements is while they're fresh. Uh, that he's got a guy in there taking shorthand notes. And he goes to work on this manhunt. And he makes a press release that night. And we're drinking the PSA here from, from our friends over at, at Mad Tree Brewing in Cincinnati, the public service announcement. It's pretty remarkable how accurate the press release was. Now, he doesn't mention Booth by name. Uh, and he misspeaks about Major Rathbone, who was stabbed by Booth in the box. This is the kind of stuff Stanton did. He, he invented the press release, really. Um, and he gets it out. He gets the word to everybody by telegram immediately. And we have Walter Starr. We'll read, you know, that press release as we wait for Lincoln to die on the morning of April 15th. This evening, at about 9.30 p.m., at Ford's Theater, while sitting in his private box with Mrs. Lincoln, Mrs. Harris, and Major Rathburn, was shot by an assassin who suddenly entered the box and approached behind the president. The assassin then leaped upon the stage, brandishing a large dagger or knife, and made his escape in the rear of the theater. The pistol ball entered the back of the president's head and penetrated nearly through the head. The wound is mortal. The president has been insensible ever since it was inflicted and is now dying. Stanton's there when Lincoln dies at 7.22 a.m. on April 15, 1865. And Stanton's kind of famous. He's credited with famously saying, when Lincoln dies, now he belongs to the ages. What a beautiful thing to say. The question, though, that, that Walter Starr brought up, you know, this famous quote that he's in Bartlett's quotations for, is there any proof that he actually said it? The quote that Stanton's most famously known for, did it even ever happen? I don't think he said it. Um, I say that sort of with a heavy heart because I wish he'd said it, um, uh, it would have been great. Um, I, I, he, the quote first appears um, in print in 1890, 25 years after Lincoln's death. Um, Lincoln's private secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, uh, published a 10-volume a biography of Lincoln. And they published it first in the magazines, kind of, month by month, sort of in the same way that novels were published in serial form in the 19th century. Um, so, you know, I, you can see it in print um, uh, in, in, uh, in the magazine there in 1890. Um, but way before that, in 1865, there are detailed accounts in the newspapers of Lincoln's last hours and Lincoln's death and the immediate aftermath. 
Uh, and none of them say that Stanton said anything right after Lincoln's died. And there are also some some private letters from folks who were in the room or at least in the house. And again, none of them say anything about Stanton saying anything. So uh, much as I would like it, I fear that Stanton did not say now he belongs to the agents right after Lincoln died. We talked to Walter Starr about this couple-week period where Edwin Stanton basically assumes control of the United States in this time of emergency. We talk about the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth, a great book called Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer um, by James Swanson, another book you should go read, uh, kind of a real page-turner about Stanton and the chase for John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators. And Walter talks about uh, you know, th- they follow every lead, and leads come in from everywhere. Uh, even, you know, my favorite that, that Walter shared, that Booth was, was in a brothel in Chicago, dressed as a woman. And it's coming from these somewhat reliable sources in Chicago, and sure enough, Stanton sends somebody to check it out. Talk to Walter about the manhunt, the most important, aggressive manhunt in American history. The search for John Wilkes Booth. He is definitely in charge. Uh, there's a great scene, there's a movie called The Conspirator about one of the those uh, charged, Mary Surratt, uh, and Stanton is played in that movie by Kevin Kline. Now, physically, Kevin Kline is not a good fit for Edwin Stanton, right? He's too tall, the beard is obviously not his own, but emotionally, he does a great job. One of the very first scenes of the movie shows him kind of barging into the house and taking charge, and that is what happened that night. And even after Lincoln's death and Andrew Johnson is sworn into office, how to put it, I mean, he's president, but there's an awful lot that he leaves in Stanton's hands and Stanton doesn't even think to to consult him about not only the manhunt, but the arrangements for the funeral train, the arrangements um, uh, for the, the... funeral services uh, at the Capitol. I mean, all of that um, Stanton is is busy with. Um, uh, I mean, even something sort of more significant where Stanton consults with Johnson, um, you get the feeling that really the decision was taken before the cabinet meeting started. killed after 12 days on the run. Eight co-conspirators are are tried. Stanton is running this prosecution. Stanton wants to run it, and there's a controversy, Stanton wants to run it as a closed military tribunal. It's still a decision to this day that is is questioned. Um, He didn't really leave that up to President Johnson. Like we said, Stanton was, was really in control of much of the government following Lincoln's death. We talked to Walter about the trial of Booth conspirators. And it was controversial at the time, controversial for two reasons. Um, one, because it was a military commission and not a civil trial, and, you know, murder, you know, is not typically thought of as a, a, a military crime. It's thought of as a, a civilian crime. Um, and it was also controversial because Stanton's original vision was that it was going to be a closed trial. 
um, in which the only people present would be the judges, the prosecutors, uh, the witnesses, but only one at a time, not while other witnesses were testifying. Uh, and there was a huge hoo-ha about that in the press, and he relented um, and opened it up to selected reporters. Um, but he didn't change his mind about it being a military commission. As far as he was concerned, this was a military crime, um, the assassination of the commander-in-chief at the military headquarters of the nation. Um, and so he um, persisted on that point and was involved. You know, he wasn't the guy who stood up and said, may it please the court. That was his good friend, Joseph Holt, the, the lead prosecutor. But um, he was, you know... Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis involved in, um, in that prosecution. Four people would hang. Andrew Johnson would assume the presidency. And initially, you know, we talked to, to Walter about the relationship between President Johnson, again, known as one of the worst presidents, impeached uh, in 1868 for trying to fire Stanton, the closest any president's ever come to being impeached, one vote away. In 1868, you can go back to listen to one of my favorite episodes, our episode, Ohio vs. Impeachment, about the role of Senator Ben Wade, who would have become president if not Johnson had survived the impeachment hearings by one vote. But these impeachment hearings were all about the firing of Edwin Stanton. So we talked to Walter about his relationship from 1865 to 1868 with President Johnson and how it soured. We have such a negative image of Andrew Johnson that it was really quite eye-opening for me to spend time reading the, the 1865 newspapers because they were universally positive, you know, had left-wing, right-wing, whatever wing you want to think of. Um, and Stanton also was very positive about Johnson when he first became president. Um, they began to differ um, and began... and ultimately differed as, as widely as two men can differ um, over um, the South and Reconstruction policy in the South. In a nutshell, Johnson's vision was to let the South govern the South, by which he meant white Southerners. Uh, and Stanton um, felt very strongly that the United States Army needed to remain in the South to maintain law and order, to ensure that blacks were not harassed and intimidated and raped and murdered. Um, and reports of all of that were coming across his desk every day. Um, and I won't get into the impeachment per se, but this led to first a sort of a temporary suspension of Stanton in which Grant served as acting Secretary of War. And then when the Senate refused to sort of extend that indefinitely, Johnson just said to hell with it and told Stanton, you're out. And Stanton said, to hell with it, I'm staying. Um, and through the impeachment, um, it, it's all about the legality or illegality of Johnson's attempted removal of Stanton, and Stanton watches it all from the War Department where he kind of camps out um, against Johnson's wishes, um, but in his view as the legal Secretary of War. Again, I implore you to go back and listen to our Ohio versus impeachment episode. You know, you hear a lot about impeachment these days, um, especially with the House of Representatives turning over to the Democrats. But we talk about the history of impeachment. We talk about that impeachment 
of Andrew Johnson. And we talk a lot about Stanton's role at the War Department. Um, some really great, great scenes in the War Department there. Edwin Stanton would only live four years after Lincoln. And a year after the Johnson survives impeachment and Stanton leaves the War Department, he would die in, at the end of 1869. But he was also nominated by President Grant to become a Supreme Court justice. Maybe one of the, the top goals Stanton ever wanted to achieve when he started arguing in front of the Supreme Court in the 1850s. We talked to Walter about that short-lived and ill-fated nomination to the court. He nominated and confirmed for a seat as an associate justice, but it was a seat that was not going to be open for another couple weeks. And um, within a couple days of his confirmation, he dies uh, Christmas Eve. Um, uh, he's not very old. He's only uh, 55 years old. As we leave you today, this episode about the unheralded hero, Edwin Stanton, who saved the Union from Steubenville, Ohio. We want to talk to our guest, Walter Starr, again about, about not just this book, but, but being an author. You know, and, and why he does it and what it means to him. You know, I'm talking to him about, you know, hey, we, we want to promote your book and hopefully get you, you know, some of our listeners, you know, will buy the book and you'll see a little spike. But Walter kind of just shrugged that off. He, he didn't seem very concerned about book sales. He wants people to read the book. He doesn't really care how you get it. But he wants you to get to know people like Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War. You know, readers... It, Go to the public library. Check it out. I, I care much more about people reading the books than, than buying the books. I, I, I hope I, – I do this because I want people to meet these guys, to, to kind of get to know them, to, uh, to kind of live through what they lived through. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation, obviously, duh It's Stanton By Walter Starr, 2017, Simon & Schuster an awesome book, uh, covers the entire career, obviously focusing on those, those all-important war years in Washington, D.C., um, but a really cool book and really shed some light uh, on a figure from not just history, but Ohio history that, that not, has not been talked about enough, his importance and his role in winning the Civil War. But he's, he was so thorough in these books, and I've read his other books, Seward, uh, and I'm looking forward to reading John Jay, his very first book about, you know, kind of the forgotten founding father. But he did, he did the digging that other people haven't done. And he finds this, just this little nugget, you know, of a relationship that developed between Stanton and one of my favorite all-time authors, Charles Dickens. 
Dickens comes to the United States when, when Stanton is Secretary of War, and they meet. And that's really Stanton's favorite author, is Charles Dickens. But it shows that level of research um, that our author, Walter Starr, will go to. And like I said, it's such a joy to talk to someone who's so good at their craft and that he was willing to, to give us some time to sit here and talk about Ohio history. Well, other folks had known of the connection with Dickens, and other folks had known that when Dickens came to Washington in early 1868, that Stanton and Dickens met. What I did seemed kind of obvious. I said, well, what, if anything, did Charles Dickens write about Edwin Stanton? And so I went to the... um, as, as you can imagine, some English authors have gathered every scrap of paper that Charles Dickens wrote during his life, the, the letters of Charles Dickens, in I think it's something like 20 volumes. And so I looked for letters from that time period. And lo and behold, Dickens wrote several times about Edwin Stanton. He really liked Edwin Stanton. I suppose it's not surprising as an author when you find someone who's read every word you've written. So um, he wrote in one letter that Stanton was, quote, a man of very remarkable memory and famous for his acquaintance with the minutest details of my books. Give him any passage anywhere, and he will instantly cap it and go on with the context. So um, obviously, you know, Stanton impressed Dickens with his memorization of the works of Charles Dickens. So that gives you a sense of how how frequently and closely Stanton read Dickens, that he could quote Dickens as as well or better than Dickens himself could do it. All right, guys, thank you so much again to, to Walter Starr for joining us. Uh, we've got to do a Civil War episode every season. We'll have to have him back when he finishes his book about Cincinnati's Salmon P. Chase, one of my favorite figures in Ohio history. Again, uh, don't forget about Giving Tuesday. Go to ohiohistory.org on Tuesday, November 27th. Donate five, ten bucks, whatever you you can spare. Um, And that's the way that we'll continue to to push the history of Ohio and tell Ohio's stories and do that important work that they do at the Ohio History Center and our 58 uh, satellite sites that we manage across the state. We will be back in two weeks. We're going to be talking about another war, the Cold War. We'll talk about Columbus's own Curtis LeMay. Bombs away LeMay, as they called him. Um, and one man's career from being a poor kid on the south side of Columbus uh, to being you know, the president's right-hand man. And he will walk us through the entire World War II and Cold War years all the way through the 1968 pivotal election that we talked about in our last episode. Rate and review the show. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, guys. Uh, we're starting to get some... More and more listeners, um, but subscribing to the show and rating and reviewing it really helps us move up. Follow us on Twitter at Ohio V The World. Uh, also on, on Instagram, Ohio V The World Podcast. If you have a show idea, send it to us. You can always email the show, Ohio V The World at gmail.com. Uh, or, of course, the easiest way is always Facebook, our Facebook page. Like it, uh, and you can communicate with us that way. We always try and get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, for anyone who has show ideas or, or anything else going on in the world of Ohio history. So thanks again for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks 
on December 2nd, Sunday, December 2nd. Remember, we're releasing shows every other Sunday. Um, and again, like us on Facebook, and we'll drop those episodes right into your news feed. And we can't wait to join you guys again for episode five. We'll be a third of the way through the season. It's crazy. Time flies. So happy Thanksgiving, guys, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.